0: The power to create a better world for future generations is in our hands. Collectively reinvesting money into clean and sustainable companies is one way we can get there. It ensures money is driving a better future. Make your money matter at australianethical.com.au G'day, welcome to the Dumbo Feather podcast. I'm Nathan, and this week we've got one of our much-loved guests, Hugh McKay, who spoke with us back in July for a Small Giants Academy conversation event. Hugh was sharing his thoughts and insights around his latest book, The Kindness Revolution. And actually, dotted throughout are some little gems for those of us still in lockdown. I know it can be hard to hear lockdown perspective at the moment, but a part of me did find these useful, so... I hope you do too. And then there is the message we all need to keep hearing. That is that kindness is an inherent part of our human condition, and we need to double down on it. Hugh spoke with our programming manager at Small Giants Academy, Eleanor Gammel.
1: So Hugh is a social psychologist. Hugh is the author of 22 books, can you believe it, including eight novels. His non-fiction writing covers social analysis, psychology, communication, ethics. He's had a 60-year career in social research and was also a weekly newspaper columnist for 25 years. Hugh is a fellow of the Australian Psychological Society and of the Royal Society of New South Wales and has been awarded an honorary doctorate by five Australian universities, which is quite extraordinary. Hugh was appointed an officer of the Order of Australia in 2015. And He's currently Honorary Professor in the Research School of Psychology at ANU in Canberra. Over to you, Hugh.
2: Thank you very much, Eleanor. Now, Eleanor mentioned that I've been in the social research business for a long time, so you would perhaps expect me to begin by asking you a few questions. Do you ever find yourself despairing about man's inhumanity to man? Do you sometimes wonder whether the wearying gender wars will ever end? Are you shocked by the level of violence in our society or, particularly reflecting on NAIDOC week, are you shocked by our failure even after all these years and all these initiatives and all these inquiries and all this money to come to a point of true reconciliation between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians? Do you sometimes, this wouldn't be often, but maybe occasionally, shake your head in disgust at the behaviour of politicians in our parliaments? Are you saddened when you hear people abusing each other on the basis of gender or religion or ethnicity? Well, there is a lot of ugly stuff in the world, and we have to acknowledge that that's the case. But it's become a bit fashionable to be gloomy about all this and to jump on the bandwagon of doom and say, well, it's obviously all going to end badly. In fact, if you just relied on the mass media news bulletins for your information about what's going on in the world, you would be pretty gloomy. And we need to remind ourselves occasionally that the news is the news. The reason why things are on the news is because they're unusual. They're exceptional. We need to remind ourselves occasionally that The news is telling us about certain kinds of things that are happening, but not telling us about most of what's happening, (laughs) because most of what's happening is not bad news at all. Just consider where you live, where you work. Look at the everyday acts of kindness and compassion and goodwill, cooperation that are going on around us all the time, that are never going to make the news because they're not news. They're human beings behaving in a way that is true to the essence of human nature. What about the people who, without a second thought or a backward glance, will just help a stranger out of a jam? They won't say, oh, I see you're in need of help. Now, how did you vote in the last election? Or do you believe in the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus? I mean, we don't qualify people, do we? We see that they need help. And so we give them help. That's what humans do. You see a frail elderly person crossing a busy road or getting on or off a bus and you just reach out and help. What about the people who always smile and say hello when they pass you in the street? What about the people who've given up their own ambition in order to care for a relative or someone in their family, perhaps living with a disability? What about people who night after night, I'm sure this includes some of you, night after night, year after year, volunteer their services to help feed the poor and the homeless? People who rush to the aid of those who've been affected by floods or fires. What about that wonderful story about the thousands of retired school teachers in Victoria who, after the second lockdown, volunteered their services to coach pupils who'd been disadvantaged? by homeschooling during the pandemic lockdown. And I think we can safely say that all children who experienced homeschooling (laughs) during the lockdown were disadvantaged by it. What about the people who late in life plant trees? Isn't that a wonderful thing? They're planting trees for the pleasure of future generations. They know they are never going to pick the fruit. They're never going to sit in the shade of those trees, but they're doing it for people that they don't know and will never meet. Now, that's a tiny sample of the wonderful things that people are getting up to all the time. We could develop a very long list, of course, but even those few items should save you from despair by reminding you that in any human society, in any given setting, certainly in the neighborhoods where most of us live, the good deeds outnumber the bad. And that's because the tendency to behave kindly is an inherent part of human nature. It's not some extraordinary thing that some saints do. It's not something that calls on deep reserves of altruism. We are simply members of a social species. What that means is we are built to cooperate with each other. We are utterly dependent on families, groups, neighborhoods, communities of all kinds to sustain us and nurture us, and to provide the emotional security that comes from that all-important sense of belonging. Now, because we need some measure of social harmony in order to survive, let alone thrive, our brains are actually wired for kindness and cooperation. Neuroscientists can now peep into the human brain In ways that philosophers and psychologists could previously only speculate about. And they tell us, yes, there is an identifiable cooperative center in the brain, which wouldn't come as a surprise to you, would it? If we belong to a social species, then obviously we have evolved to be cooperators. And the key to cooperation is to behave kindly and respectfully uh, towards each other. We don't always do it, but the capacity, for kindness and cooperation, I believe, is our species' most precious asset. It's true that we often undervalue it in favor of more ego-driven impulses, competitive impulses. But when we're being true to what Abraham Lincoln once described as the better angels of our nature, we're capable of great kindness, even towards people we don't like, And could never agree with. Isn't that a remarkable thing? Don't you like pondering the fact that you belong to a species like that? Samuel Johnson, about 250 years ago, wrote, kindness is in our power, even when fondness is not. And I think that's something worth celebrating. In fact, isn't the kindness of strangers one of the loveliest things you've ever experienced, one of the most encouraging, hopeful aspects of human nature. Now, kindness, as I'm describing it here, is not some kind of soft option. We can be kind and tough. We can speak our mind kindly. We can terminate a relationship kindly. We can terminate someone's employment kindly. We can discipline a child kindly. The capacity, not always used, but the capacity to behave kindly towards anyone in any situation is there built into us. And if we reflect on 2020 and now 2021, when clearly the pandemic is not going to leave us alone, in response to the pandemic coming hard on the heels of those appalling bushfires at the end of 2019, beginning of 2020, we drew on our capacity for kindness on a massive scale. In fact. I think it's fair to say we'd never previously witnessed an outpouring of love such as we saw in the experience of the very first lockdown. The empty car parks, the lack of traffic, the deserted school playgrounds, pubs and restaurants closed, people keeping a respectful distance from each other when they had to mingle, people wearing masks when asked to do so, neighbours looking out for each other, doing each other's shopping, paying more attention to the frail, aged others at risk of social isolation and loneliness and so on. Now, some cynics will say, oh, yeah, we did all that because we were told to. But, of course, we went way beyond what we were told to do. I don't know what happened in your street, but in streets and neighbourhoods and apartment buildings all over Australia, there are thousands of stories have emerged of people who weren't just keeping their distance and wearing a mask as they were told to, but who were actively reaching out. To help people who might be in need of help. Now, not everyone behaved well, particularly in the beginning. Panic and fear often bring out the worst in us. And when we're faced with a threat of catastrophe or crisis or major disruption, we often do resort to panic or fear. We often behave badly, recklessly. In the case of the pandemic, racism came to the surface in a very ugly way. But that's Usually, an early response which is overtaken by the nobler aspect of our nature. Now, I call this an outpouring of love because I think of kindness as a very particular form of human love. All forms of human love are wonderful, aren't they? Romantic love is exciting, familial love is remarkable, even allows you to love people that you don't get along with all that well. Companionate love we rely on for our mental health but there is this other form of love completely unlike those three which i'm calling kindness i think of it as the purest form of human love for this reason that it has absolutely nothing to do with our emotional state we don't act kindly towards people because we like them or because we are like them we don't act kindly towards people because we agree with them We act kindly to people because that is of the essence of our human nature. It has nothing to do with our emotional state. It has nothing to do with affection. Now, I think one of the most impressive things about human nature, apart from this brilliant capacity for kindness, is not only our capacity to cope with life's inevitable disruptions such as the pandemic, upheavals, catastrophes, whether environmental or personal, but also the way we learn from them and even benefit from them. I was talking recently to a retired American academic who, early in his career, had worked in London in the 1950s, shortly after the end of World War II. And he said he was initially shocked by the number of people who said to him, You know, we really miss the war. And he thought, How could anyone miss a war? You know, death, destruction, rubble, dispossession. And people say, of course, that's not what we miss. What we miss is the sense of bondedness. What we miss is the sense of solidarity, the feeling that we would, without having to think about it, we would automatically step in to help people in need regardless of our own situation. The generation of Australians who lived through the Great Depression Later on in my research career, I spoke to a lot of people who had lived through the Great Depression, of the early 1930s, and their narratives were very, very similar. And there were two phases. The first one was, this was a period of appalling privation, deprivation, and hardship. It was a period when unemployment was at levels you couldn't even imagine today, and when there was very little social security provision. For people who were unemployed, it was a period when families in many parts of Australia really did wonder whether they were going to be able to put a meal on the table and often could only do so because neighbours had pitched in and helped each other. And yet, the second part of their narrative almost always said, you know, we're sort of grateful for that. It was the making of us in many ways, it really clarified our values. Really sorted our priorities, and really reminded us of the critical interdependence that we humans all feel. People who lived through that experience typically said they never forgot those lessons, and often they became a bit of a laughing stock in their own family. Grandma would never throw out a piece of string or a rubber band, or she'll always bake a cake when someone new moves into the street, and so. Well, they were proud of the values that were expressed by those kinds of gestures. Now, the question that I'm asking in this new book and the question I'm asking you to consider tonight is, is there likely to be a COVID effect like the Great Depression effect? Have we had enough of a jolt? Have we been locked down for long enough? Has it been tough enough for us to shake us out of a kind of complacency and remind us of what really is important, what values we really want to espouse. Now, you'd hope that that's what's going to happen. You'd hope that the experience of living through a pandemic or a fire or a flood or any other kind of catastrophe would remind us that we exist in a vibrating web of interconnectedness and interdependence. But there's no guarantee. That there's going to be a COVID effect that will linger. And one of the things working against it is what's been happening to us in the 30 or 40 years before the pandemic arrived on our shores. The story of Australia, like many other Western societies over the past 30 or 40 years, has been the story of a society in the grip of various social changes which have been reshaping our values, reshaping our way of life in precisely the opposite direction from the one I'm describing that could happen in response to the pandemic. When you think of things like our shrinking households, our high rate of relationship breakdown, our extreme mobility, moving house now on average once every six years. When you think of our enthusiastic embrace of information technology, which promises to make us more Connected than ever before, and it does, but also makes it easier than ever before to stay away from each other. When you think of those and other changes which have been reshaping our society, the cumulative effect of those changes has not been to remind us that we exist in a vibrating web of interconnectedness and interdependence. On the contrary, the cumulative effect of those changes and others like them has been to emphasize our individuality. We've been through a period of rampant individualism. We've been through a period when we've all been anxious to assert our own personal identity. Identity politics is the full flowering of this period of rampant independence, where we think of ourselves as unique and individual, often at the expense of remembering that the deeper truth about us is not to do with our individual differences and our personal identity, but the deeper truth about us is, in fact, that we share a common humanity. Now, we did see signs of people understanding that during the pandemic, and that, of course, is still going. As I've said, there are stories from all over Australia of people who demonstrated a new sense of interdependence riding over the top of their sense of independence. And in fact, I think we became much more aware of the risks of social isolation during the pandemic as more and more of us got a tiny little taste of what it's like to be socially isolated through a lockdown, particularly if we live alone. We didn't like it. Of course, we didn't like it. Prisoners don't like it when they're put in solitary confinement. Human beings being members of a social species don't like it when they are separated from the herd. Of course we don't like it, and it's got very demonstrable risks associated with it. Increased risk of anxiety and depression, increased risk of loneliness, which is itself a form of disease, hypertension, inflammation, disturbed sleep, addictions, all of those things are associated with social isolation. And perhaps we just got enough of a taste during the pandemic to remind us that in our society, possibly in your street, there are people who are permanently at risk of social isolation, not just the tiny taste that we all had, but who are living with the challenge of social isolation on a more or less permanent basis. Another thing I think we learned during the pandemic was that the technology, like this technology, Zoom, is absolutely brilliant, but of course, you can't go on forever just Zooming. Because we belong to a human species, we need to be with each other. We need human presence. It turns out, who would have thought that eye contact is actually the magic ingredient in personal relationships and human communication? And of course, you don't get eye contact on Zoom or FaceTime. You're looking at a screen, not at a person's eyes. So perhaps even though the technology saved us from too much social isolation during the pandemic, it also reminded us of what a second best alternative it really is. Now, don't you think it would be a tragedy if the lessons that we learned, the things that we reflected on during the pandemic, we're just forgotten, and we just slipped back into the way we were. I did see a New Yorker cartoon a few weeks ago showing two women talking to each other about the effects of the pandemic, and one saying to the other, I'm looking forward to forgetting all the stuff I learned about myself during the lockdown. Well, my hope is exactly the opposite of that, that we won't forget all the stuff we learned about ourselves during the lockdown, and I'll go further. Is it too much to hope that the personal lessons we always learn when we have to confront a crisis or a catastrophe of some kind, that those personal lessons could not just be internalized and made part of our default position that we decide, yep, we like ourselves when we live like that. Why don't we just keep living like that? But what about if it got multiplied up to the point where, these lessons were applied more generally in our society. Why couldn't we become known as the loving country, not the lucky country? Why couldn't we become known as a society where kindness and fairness, perhaps it's twin, where kindness is the criterion we always apply when we're trying to assess a particular economic or social policy proposal? Couldn't our political culture be transformed by a kindness revolution. It would certainly lead to a more energetic commitment to reconciliation with the people of our First Nations. It would lead to a more humane response to people who come here seeking asylum, a more determined effort to eradicate poverty and homelessness, more urgent action about climate change. We might finally grow out of racism, ageism, sexism. We would certainly become more generous to people for whom we have no work people who are struggling with mental illness or disabilities or other debilitating conditions. Certainly a more loving country would take better care of its frail age. It would tackle the problem of educational inequality and, of course, it would demand more courtesy and kindness in the conduct of its politics and industrial relations. Well, is that just a pipe dream? Is that impossible? Can you not imagine? A society in which all of us made such an energetic commitment to living kindly that gradually there would be an actual revolution, that the rising tide of kindness would even reach the political culture. Why can't we go on behaving in the same kind, caring, mutually respectful way that we do when there's a crisis? Now, if you wanted to join the kindness revolution. If you said, okay, this is an attractive idea, yep, what should I do? If you ask me, what is the one thing I could do to promote a kinder society, to add some momentum to the kindness revolution, I would say, sharpen up your listening skills. To have real impact on the culture we live in, we need to become more attentive, empathic listeners. And why do I say that? Well, again, I relate that back to my opening proposition that we belong to a social species. Because we belong to a social species, humans' deepest need is the need to be taken seriously. And the most potent demonstration of the fact that I do take you seriously is when I listen attentively and empathically to what you have to say, even if I don't like what I'm hearing. And of course, the converse is true also. When you don't listen attentively and empathically to another person, whether a partner or a child, a colleague, a friend, a neighbour or a total stranger, then without needing to say a word, you've conveyed the clear impression that we don't take that person seriously enough to bother listening to them. How hurtful do you think that might be? Would you ever say that to someone's face? Sorry, I don't take you seriously enough to bother listening to you. No, we wouldn't. But that's what we say, that's what we imply whenever we stop short of generous, attentive listening. There are other things we'd have to do, of course. We'd have to become much more prepared to apologise when we've hurt or wronged someone. We'd have to be much readier to forgive people who've hurt and wronged us. But the steps are easily imagined. What's required is the commitment. Now, think of it in terms of the kind of society you'd like to live in. Do you ever dream of a different kind of Australia? Do you ever on a quiet, reflective Sunday afternoon think, I wonder what life would be like if people were perhaps a bit more violent? You know, we waste too many words, don't we? Why don't we just hit each other? Why are people so nice to me? I I, I don't understand all this niceness. Of course, you don't say that. When you dream of a different kind of society, it's always going to be less violent, isn't it? It's always going to be kinder, more compassionate, more cooperative, more respectful, more inclusive, more egalitarian, more harmonious, less cynical. Of course, that's the kind of society we dream of. And there's only one way for us to start making that society happen. It won't happen from the top. The Prime Minister won't pass a Kindness Act, and that would be a futile gesture anyway. Revolutions never start at the top. It starts when enough of us individually say, yeah, I get it. I know that when I'm at my best, I'm behaving kindly even towards people I can't stand, even towards people whose politics I could never share, but that's me at my best. I'm going to live like that. When enough of us start living like that, then that's the kind of society we will become. Thank you, Eleanor.
1: Thank you so much, Hugh. You mentioned solitary confinement. You pointed out that it's one of the greatest punishments in prisons because we are social creatures. The tragedy of contemporary Western society is that we're not living as if we need each other, when actually that is our core truth, that we need each other, that we depend on each other, that our health depends on our community's belonging. How is it even possible, if that is the most core, heart space component of who we are as a species, how is it even possible that we lost sight of it?
0: Mm.
2: Well, these other impulses are also very powerful. The ego is the great enemy of kindness and compassion. If you've fallen for the idea that you've got to look out for number one, that there are always winners and losers, and I'd rather be a winner. If you fall for the idea that me and my identity, whether it's my identity on the gender spectrum or my ethnicity or my religious beliefs or whatever it might be, that this is the most important thing about me, then you've pushed your capacity for kindness into the shadows. And it does happen. We do have competitive impulses. We do have egos. The challenge really is to adopt the discipline of saying, when I can feel the contest between my natural human disposition to respond to other people kindly, and my desire to please myself, I'm going to resolve that contest always in the same direction. Humans behave badly. We know that. And that's not because some humans are bad and some are good. We've all got these capacities. It really is just up to us to remind ourselves, our loved ones, our kids, et cetera, that this is the way to live, and notice when there's a crisis, that is how we live. And I think that's the thing that encourages me most, is that when the going gets tough, humans tend to behave well. So the capacity is there. And as with the gender revolution, I mean, the gender revolution started in Australia in the 70s because we saw terrible injustices and we decided to embrace a new meaning of egalitarianism Well, here we are in 2021, that revolution isn't over, we still have a long way to go. We keep reminding ourselves of what the ideal is and I think it's the same here. We have to keep reminding ourselves that kindness is who we are and if we're falling short Mm. of that, then we're not fully flourishing, fully realised humans.
1: Mm. Let's talk about social media, the advent of trolling scapegoating, the online bullying of a three-year-old daughter, and the day that she's old enough to be in the world of online bullying and social media, it actually terrifies me. What is it that makes us feel like the worst of ourselves has an outlet for expression in social media?
2: I think a couple of the reasons, anonymity is a big one. I mean, to think of how we behave in our cars, the car is an unnatural human environment. We've adapted to it, But people say the most appalling things to fellow motorists when they're in their cars, knowing they'll never be heard. In other words, there are circumstances where, because we're not making eye contact, because we're not actually interacting with another person, but we're driving a car that's interacting with other cars, that can bring out the worst in us. People do ridiculous things on the road. Well, now, in the social media setting, again, There's the problem of anonymity. People are not always anonymous, but they can be, and they can pretend to be anyone they like. So that's a huge factor. But the other factor is that online contact, which is valuable, brilliant, convenient, we're all enriched by it in a lot of ways, but we have to remind ourselves that what it lacks is human presence. There is no eye contact. And what neuroscientists are now telling us over and over again is that eye contact is like the expressway to the human brain. That that's how we really interact. And you know that if you're trying to talk to someone and they refuse to make eye contact with you, it's a very disturbing experience. We've now identified around the world, including in Australia, the phenomenon of young people, especially the 18 to 24 age group, who are our heaviest users of social media, also report the highest levels of loneliness. So connected but lonely is an actual phenomenon. And there's an extension of that, Eleanor, which again goes back to our basic essential nature as human beings, which is that because we are social creatures, we need a daily dose of human presence. Not all the time. We also need periods of solitude to restore our sanity and rebuild our resources for the demanding business of being a human. But it's as though in the same way as we all need to eat a certain amount, we all need a certain amount of actual human presence, actual social interaction in order to maintain our mental and emotional health and equilibrium. So what happens when you're not getting your daily dose of human presence is that you are inclined to be cranky, irritable, even angry. And the curious feature of this is that you probably don't know where that anger came from. So it's, it's anger arising from being deprived of human presence without knowing that's the problem because it seems as if there's this continuous human presence courtesy of social media.
1: You know, it's important that when we when we have these conversations and we've got the opportunity and the privilege to listen to you speak about this work, we each recognise that this is an invitation. This is an invitation to instil what we feel is true to us about this work in our own lives, in our own communities, in our families, and I think it's reflecting on kindness in the context of legacy and meaningful contribution, and I can't think of anyone making more significant contributions than you are, Hugh, and that you have been for so many years. The level of complexity in the way our world operates, the systems around us, the way our industries operate, the vastness of information, it is so complex. And what you're doing here is, in the context of that overload, you're actually bringing with this work something that is quite profoundly simple. It is simple. It is of our essence to be kind and to connect in this way.
0: Big thanks to Hugh and Elle for hosting that event. Hugh's book, The Kindness Revolution, is out now, and you can get it at your local bookshop. Stay up to date with the events and programs we run at Small Giants Academy by heading over to smallgiants.com.au. Dumbo Feather is a print magazine, a website, and of course a podcast that gives a platform to people who are building a hopeful future. We'd love your support by subscribing to our print magazine over at dumbofeather.com. Our partners on this episode are Australian Ethical, and they are doing great things to ensure our money matters and to remind us that the power to create a better world for future generations is in our hands. You can learn more about them at australianethical.com.au. Thanks for your company. Take good care, and I'll see you soon.